It is good to be in Seminary Chapel with you today. Welcome. Um, I was thinking how wonderful it would be during Module Week to have a message on joy, rejoicing in trials. Wasn't the case. I thought maybe then maybe a great message on perseverance. That would be, wasn't the case. And frankly, I begin to wonder at um, the motivations between those who assign us chapel topics. I think back to the the passage I had when we did Jeremiah. I thought someone's going to see whether or not I actually understand how to handle the Bible. Well, then I got beyond that and thought it wasn't that bad of a passage once I got into it and probably something I should have done and it was good for me. And then we come to 1 Timothy and all the things that are in 1 Timothy, I end up with 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 on slavery. And I thought, okay, somebody has an agenda Um, with regard to how they're doing this. So, no, I'm only kidding. Um, Actually, I had the the luxury, because of how things worked out, if I just wanted to pick my own topic, or I could stay in 1 Timothy. And I'm thankful that really the Lord led me to stay in 1 Timothy. So take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy in chapter 6. Um, And we'll look really at at the first two verses of of chapter 6. Let's, let's look at them, we'll read them together, and then really, I, I want to, while looking at this passage, also challenge us in our thinking with regard to the context in which we're doing this. And I really want to encourage you, even if you're here laboring over a module week, thinking, I really could be back at my church, or, you know, that sort of thing, um, or all the wonderful things that are going on this week that I really, I really could be doing, the tyranny of the immediate, I really want to encourage you with regard to the value of what you're doing in seminary training. Because looking at this passage today, one of the things I want you to see is the absolute essential value of careful hermeneutics for purposeful homiletics. Like how can I not just preach with passion and that be just something that I do in performance, but actually preach with passion because of what I've become convinced the intent of the passage was by its original author. So let, let's look at this passage and understand my approach is going to actually be about understanding it and why we understand it the way we do. Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Really, what I want us to see in this passage of Scripture, I'm assuming I just clicked to advance, is that right, or hit an arrow? Is the primary place of the gospel in relationships. The primary place of the gospel in relationships. Now, why would I title it that in light of the fact that we just read two verses directly dealing with slaves and masters? Let's think about it for a moment. We're going to talk about the principal place, what I believe in our thinking ought to be the principal place of the gospel in relationships, or if you will, that we must view our relationships through the lens of the gospel, or how should the gospel impact my view of relationships? So in this text in particular, what does the workshop 
of the overlapping relationships between the church and the workplace or the marketplace teach us about the priority of the gospel for relationships? What does the workshop, and I use that word on purpose because I think the language here is with regard to the fact that these relationships are something we are working on. There's truth that in this passage, we are specifically called to bring to bear on something. And you'll see that with this word to regard. So what does the workshop of the overlapping relationships, and I think that's really, really important. Because one of the things this does is does not allow us a false dichotomy. I treat you one way at work, I treat you a different way at church, or uh, you're not at church, so then I have license to treat you a different way, or you are at church, so I have license to treat you a different way. And you see both of those in this text. But they are the overlapping relationships between the church and the workplace teach us about the priority of the gospel for relationships, and in particular, why is this essential if we from this book are going to have a mindset that actually is on guarding the faith? Because something's at stake in this passage of Scripture. Something has the potential of not being thought of correctly or of being spoken against. And it's the teaching. So this is a really important passage. And I think its positioning is really important. I include the first two verses of chapter 6 with Paul's teaching in chapter 5. It seems looking structurally that a new paragraph and subject are introduced at the end of chapter 2, uh, uh, verse 2 of chapter 6. And so notice the flow and why I'm, I'm going to say what I say. Paul's focus in, in the whole section, if you will, that is chapter 5, shifts from chapter 4 in the issue of false teachers to the issue of church organization and life. I call it relationships. The two sections are related in that the responsibilities mentioned overlap here with regard to this thought about the overall health and vitality of the church or what we have termed the guarding of the faith so there's some kind of direct correlation in all the importance he puts with regard to what false teachers are doing and what they could do to the faith and now he moves into relationships and he actually has in his mind this is equally important because of how it could affect the faith let me stop and challenge you with this regard. There's a reason why in this book, when Paul rehearses for Timothy the qualifications for a minister or an elder, that he actually puts great import on relationships. When he says you've got to manage your own household well, like he really, really understands that this, this matters. Why? Because it matters for the faith and the, the resting place of the faith, which he has identified as the pillar and ground of the truth, the church. So this really matters. And so I think he's going to lay out for us. You've seen them. You've been through them four areas. I think chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 specifically are the context of church discipline. I don't just think he's talking about how do you treat older people or younger people or all of that. I think actually the, the language coming out of chapter 4 and the idea of do not rebuke, he actually is talking about the type of conversation you're having. He's not just saying, hey, you guys, stop rebuking these people. He's actually talking about, I think, a context in which someone would rightly be rebuked, and I think he's also going to do the same thing when he comes to how do you address a sinning elder. 
And so here he's going to establish what I think is a, a baseline for how you should relate with regard to the truth and then care of widows and who they are. He's going to move then to the treatment of what we would refer to as pastors. And ultimately, he's going to come then to the conduct of slaves. Right after it, he's going to return back to the context of false teachers, and he's going to do so with a reiteration of the, what we have referred to as the charge. So if you'll notice, verse 11 of chapter 4, command and teach these things. And the end of chapter 2, uh, uh, verse 2 in chapter 6, he says that we are to teach and urge these things, a reiteration of the charge. He's going to return then to dealing with false teachers again. So our theme in studying through 1 Timothy has been guarding the faith. And so I hope that as you've worked through chapter 5 and now these two verses, that you are seeing that a right approach to relationships is absolutely essential for the church to properly guard the faith. That's really what I want to leave us with. It's not okay if chapter 5, 1 and 2 is actually addressing approaching people who are in error about their error in light of the authority of the scriptures within the structure of the church, it is not okay for us to not do that. We're not guarding the faith. It is an anemic church today that doesn't actively pursue discipleship in a context that could lead to discipline. It's anemic. Our Western culture with the mindset being we have a conversation, it really would be better for you to go to the church across town, and I don't want to get into this because it'll cause all kinds of trouble for us, is actually dooming that church to spiritual anemia. Why? Because you're not actually producing disciples. So th this, is this is really important. So I want you to see it actually as we, as we look at the, the text. So look at, with me by way of introduction back at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 11, because I think this is the necessary entree to this. He gives the charge, verse 11, command and teach these things. And then he says, well, verses we know well, let no one despise you for your youth. But notice what he says. I don't actually think his, his, his injunction here is about Timothy's youthfulness. I actually think it's about what he's going to say next. But set the believers an example. And that's relational. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, exhortation to teaching, this public worship. 14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Relational. Then look at verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing, so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So notice the words Paul uses. Do not neglect, practice, immerse, persist. Keep a close watch. It's almost as though Paul is weaving a grid of truth and doctrine through which Timothy is being called to filter something. And I believe that what that something is will be clear in the next section of the book. It's relationships. Acts 20, 28, Paul writing to the Ephesian elders. And by the way, where's Timothy? He says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So notice 416, Paul highlights, I believe, two dynamics that are necessary for guarding the faith, and they are keep watch on yourself and keep watch on the teaching or doctrine. And Paul makes a direct connection between the word and relationships as being important in guarding the faith. Thus, it makes sense that he would follow with an enumerated list as we see it in chapter 5 and 6, 1 and 2, dealing with relationships. So I really want us just then to see two simple points. And as we do it, I want us to grasp this truth. The scriptures provide a different worldview perspective on life. And in so doing, display the incredible power of the gospel to impact everything about a person and their understanding of themselves and others. This is what we need to take away from this text. And we'll see it highlighted, I think, because of the type of relationship that he's dealing with. But the scriptures provide a different worldview perspective of life. And in so doing, display the incredible power of the gospel to impact everything about a person and their understanding of themselves and others. So as we then understand the text, we're going to understand the text and we're going to apply the text. That's really all I want to do today. And as we do that, I I want us to see what is being addressed specifically in the text and, and understand why it's important. Safely, I think we can say culturally, the context in which Paul is writing in the Roman world indicates to us that there is at least a large percentage of the church community that is marked by some kind of cultural relationship that we would understand as slave and master. Why would I say that? Look at what he does in picking the relationships he's going to address. Widows? Pastors? general, if you will, age-graded relationships, where else could he go? Like, I'm going to try and cover the whole of the church here. Where else could I go? And in some reason, in his thinking, by way of inspiration, he's going to talk about slaves and masters. So he's speaking directly into what they understood to be their regular, everyday, cultural dynamic. This This is the people. This is who we are. These are the relationships you find yourself in. And so he's going to speak to that cultural, if you will, institution in light of the church. And if I understand Paul's argument correctly, he's instructing slaves to honor their masters in a similar way to which he instructed widows and elders to be honored. Though one is a verb and the other is a noun, the same word is used in 5.3 and in 6.1. Honor. As we look at this discussion, I want to give us then some cautions hermeneutically. First, because of our current and Christian understanding of the institution of slavery, we have a tendency to approach the issue in Scripture with a sense of revulsion. Something I totally understand. However... Due to that inclination, we can very quickly look to adjust the text and make the entire conversation about today's modern worker in a capitalist Western culture and how uh, the, the employee and the employer should relate to one another. 
That's our tendency. And I think there's some legitimate application there because the word is applicable to us and where we live and, and how we live. But if that is all we do with the text, there's something of vast importance that we'll miss. Secondly, in their context, the scriptures do not present a defense or justification of the institution of slavery in the ancient world, nor do they overtly present a condemnation of the institution. But what the scriptures do provide, and by the way, the issue of slavery is not just a passing thought. It's incredibly pronounced in the epistles, where 1 Corinthians 7.20 Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, Colossians, Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1, this passage, and 1 Peter 2, 18 through 21. I mean, it's incredibly pronounced, which tells me, one, this is part of what was in their culture. Secondly, the scriptures think it's important. What they provide, then, is a different worldview perspective of life. And if we as preachers and interpreters simply change or contextualize a passage like this to match our current cultural context, we will lose what I believe is the most potent application of a text like this. In fact, I think these last two verses become the most extreme example of the power of the gospel to shape relationships and how that proper gospel relationships both display and guard the gospel. I think that's what he's doing here. In other words, I've talked about these relationships, I've talked about widows, I've talked about the elder-pastor relationship with the body, and you know what? This even applies to slaves and masters. One, because it's most extreme, and two, probably because it is the place where people would be most inclined because of church relationships to do something different. Something different than what the scriptures actually call for. So, Without going into all the detail, simply because of time, which doesn't slow down, the context in which he is writing to this is really important, and I'm not going to walk us through slavery in the ancient world. I, I encourage you to do that. Isby has a couple of really simple little articles that actually do a really great job. They're, it's very, very detailed, well-sourced. If you want to get culture, go get that. But one of the things that you actually will discover that is at the root of the understanding of slavery in both Greece and Rome is the idea of the absence of personhood. Why can I use you the way I use you? Why do I do the things I can do to you? Why do I treat you the way that I do? It's actually because I've transferred you from the idea of being a person to actually being merchandise. And that is clear. You just go back and, and read the statements. And by the way, Many of them don't refer even to the word slavery as much as they do the workmen or the workplace. And they actually make the point that someone is less than a person if they have to actually labor to survive. That's, that's the mindset. Now, did everybody that lived in Greece and Rome think that? No. Did the elite think that? I don't know that you can go read what they have written, even Aristotle, and escape that that's how they thought. So when Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he begins to speak into a culture like that, if you go back and look at what he says, 
you will actually see that what he is doing is stepping into an established institution and he actually is approaching it with a totally different worldview that says, however this works, slave and master, you are dealing with image bearers. There is personhood here. And in light of the fact that we're going to acknowledge who God is and what God says and what God has done, you must view this and everything differently. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen. Even the last of the call to the apostles, the apostle Paul, though I think socially in, in Judaism he would have been different than the others, what did he do? He says, 1 Corinthians 4, we toil working with our own hands. He had a different view of, of labor because of the work of Christ in his mind. And because of that, it leads us to a conception out of personhood with regard to relationships. Obviously, one of the factors in personhood that you have to address is the whole idea of fatherhood. Where did it come from? Someone made it. But then out of that, there's the application of brotherhood. And those become terms that we're very familiar with in the church, but might just think they're great ways to introduce sentence. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And he actually is giving an incredible theological truth with regard to the relationships. You are a brotherhood. Why? Because you obtained personhood. Why? Because there's a God that made you and made them. And when we put it in those terms, none of us would then stop and think, well, I'm not sure how the gospel applies to that. Matthew 23, 8 says, one is your master, all you are brethren. 1 Peter 3, 8, be you all of one mind, love as brethren. 1 John 4, 21, this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, love his brother also. 1 John 3, 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. When you think of these verses in light of what the theological concept is, he actually is framing our relationships in light of our faith no matter how extreme they may be. And so that's understanding the text, so then quickly let's apply the text. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters. So simply, let's look at it together. One, I want you to see first general instructions. And I want you to see that they're broader. It's not unsaved bosses and saved bosses. By the way, Almost every commentary I looked at, every header has something to do with the Christian employee and the cluster employer. It's just, I think it's just the way we think, right? And yes, I think there's application for that. But I want you to see these are general instructions. I think they include everything. And then there's specific instructions. So general instructions, and let's just walk through the text. Who they were, we've already seen this. All who are under a yoke. The word is simply used here to imply that, that, that this is difficult. There's burden here. He's going to talk about a, an actual very difficult relationship. You're under the yoke. There's a bondage. This implies labor. This is a difficult relationship as bond servants. And the word he uses is slave. Why is it important that we actually address it and what it is? Because I think we feel the weight of the gospel's impact if we actually understand what he's talking to. 
Secondly, I think it's really important that we not lose the word. Why? I think he overplayed his hand quite a bit, but John MacArthur wrote a book called Slave, and in doing so, he actually addresses the hidden truth about your identity in Christ. I suggest that you read it. Like I say, I think he overplays his hand, but he actually takes the common phrase that Paul uses in referring to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And we don't understand this if we just take the term, throw it out, and make it about employer and employee. Paul was not Jesus' employee. So we can't just throw the concept away hermeneutically. So this is who they were. This was the relationship they found themselves in. But then secondly, what they were to do, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So what is the what? He uses the word hagetomai. It's a contemplative process, calls for an evaluation and a decision. Regard. Notice the criteria for that decision are not stated here. He doesn't say, regard your masters who are really nice. Regard your masters who are really kind. Regard your masters who are very benevolent. Regard your masters who only have two slaves, and they're very personalized household slaves. He actually doesn't do that. He doesn't give any criteria. They're assumed. And I believe then the evaluation resulting conclusion is based upon what Paul has said in chapter 4, leading to our understanding of relationships and that is, it's not based on the quality of the person being evaluated. It actually has a greater criteria. I should not be evaluating people and relationships based solely upon what I observe about them. I actually ought to be evaluating it based upon who they are, because God made them, who I am, because God made me, and then what gospel relationship has been established. Is there one? Is there not? So what is the criterion? I think we see the answer in what the text says next. So we see the what, but then the who. This isn't an institutional statement. He's not justifying slavery. It's a personal statement. Their own masters. And I think this is really powerful. I think it's really important because you see this personalizes the relational decision-making process. It's you. It's not because you're somehow in a class of master or I'm in a class of slave. It's your own master. He personalizes the relationship. And I think this is really important. And we end up in relational dynamics within a church that actually can end up splitting churches. And believe me, after 25 years, they do. I've only one time in 25 years of history ended up disciplining someone out of the church over the issue of division. Do you know how hard it was for a body to come to that decision? It's much easier on immorality or theft. But when it's, are you divisive? It is really hard. Why? Because now we have to actually come to a place where we begin to personalize the decision. It's you. Are you really divisive? Is that really what's going on in your life? And is it displayed enough to the point that we as a body are going to come to a place where we're not going to acknowledge your faith in Christ because of how you're living? That's church discipline. So this better be personalized. And I think that's what he's doing here. There's a way that you think about people. And then thirdly, the motivation. Why would I do this? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This is the motivation. I need to think about the most difficult of relationships through a lens that makes me aware that if I don't do this right, the name of God and what I claim as the faith are reviled. This is why this is about guarding the faith. Do you think about your relationships this way? 
Pastors, do you think about your relationships with church members this way? Husbands, do you think about your relationship with your wife this way? If I don't do this right, I put the name of God and the faith at stake. This is really important. But then we jump to specific instructions, which come in verse 2. Those who are believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Can you imagine such a thing? Oh, you're a believer. I'm going I'm to disrespect you. It almost sounds like real odd when we say it. Do you know what, friends? It's all too common. Why? Because I believe at times the gospel gives me latitude to misbehave relationally. And it doesn't. Oh, I know you, and we're and you know what? So I can mistreat you a little bit. I can be a little more flippant. I actually could use maybe a little more sarcasm, which, by the way, as a youth pastor dealing with junior high kids, when I came to understand the statement, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, it gripped my heart. The word corrupt there actually is the word sarks, and it has the idea of tearing the flesh. It's where we get our word sarcasm. Just because a junior high kid doesn't get it, I shouldn't use it and walk away gloating. We ought not to be using words that tear the flesh, but too often we do that, and we do it in the context of the fact that I've got some relational leeway because we're brothers. And we do disservice to the faith we claim. A slave here could begin to the word he uses, think down on his master and brother. And it might be in the context that he made assumptions of what the gospel would do to him culturally. Ah, the gospel's come, so you're going to let up on me. You will not hold me to the expectations of the relationship that we otherwise have because the gospel has come. And you know, you may do that, but that is not the power of the gospel. Is this rehearsed for us in the Bible? Yeah, it is. It actually ought to highlight what we do for the sake of spreading the faith in those relationships. In other words, the person who finds himself in this relationship actually is challenged not to let up and look down on a master expecting things that otherwise he would not deserve. He actually should be driven the other way because of the relationship of the gospel. A little more honor is the concept. Galatians 6 reminds us this, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's what's underlying here. Paul, I think, is highlighting the fact that the church at Ephesus is in danger of fragmentation because people were not viewing their relationships and even the most extreme of relationships through the lens of the gospel. So I'm glad I got these two little verses. I needed this study. But I hope you will see, one, the power of this text. 
But secondly, I hope you'll also see the importance of careful hermeneutics for purposeful preaching. We preach this whole passage, I think, with the right emphasis because we understand this last illustration that Paul is giving us. And I hope it rejoices your heart. If you are a believer, God actually through his spirit is in the process of shaping you with a biblical worldview so that you can look at every dynamic of life through the lens of the gospel. And in doing so, you actually can come to a different understanding about you and about others that actually guards the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Thank you that no matter who we are, that when we find ourselves in the gospel, we're doubly yours, yours by creation, yours by recreation, and thus a pathway of adoption. Lord, I pray that our regenerated hearts would long for the fulfillment of your persevering work of sanctification in us all the way down to our most extreme of relationships. Father, I pray then that you would guard the gospel in your church because your people are gospel-shaped in how they treat one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name.